Hi, okay, here we are, going to read Chapter 5 of Blood on the River, Jamestown, 1607, by Alyssa Carbone. Chapter 5. Now, at the beginning of Chapter 5, there's a piece of evidence written by Master George Percy. It's called Observations. We anchored at Dominico, a very fair island, inhabited by many savage Indians, they are continually in wars and will eat their enemies when they kill them or any stranger if they take them. Now, before we start reading, let's keep this in mind. This evidence and the things that are presented in the book, they're presented in a way that the because the people at that time thought that or said that or that's the way they spoke. So I want you to, when you read that, look at the top where it says Savage Indians. It's because George Percy had never been to the Americas before. He'd never encountered Native American people. So he doesn't know that they are, he doesn't see them the way that we know that they are, that they're, they have families and they're good people and they, um, you know, they create their own food and they're farmers and they're planters and they, you know, and they're hunters, and they're all these things, and he doesn't really know that about them. All he sees is when they first get there, he sees what he thinks he knows about them. He calls them Indians, and he, this is before they get to know the people that are the native people, the Powhatans at all. So keep that in mind when you hear some of these words and the way people describe them. It's because they really don't know them at all. And you'll see that Captain Smith is much more aware and he knows much more about the people, about the Powhatans and about other people um, than these brand new Englishmen do. So with that, let's just start reading chapter 5. So hopefully you have your book in front of you. We're on page 26, and I'd love for you to follow along while I read. Every sound wakes me. I crane my neck. Is this the night someone will murder Captain Smith? But each time it is only one of the men groaning in his sleep, or the retching of one of the poor souls who has not yet gotten over the seasickness. And so... Captain Smith is still alive. We anchor at one of the Canary Islands, Grand Canaria. I steal a chance to go on deck and have my first sight of land in many weeks. Huge gray mountains, steep and rocky, rise up into the clouds. A few of the sailors go ashore in the longboats to fill our barrels with fresh water. And then we are on our way, riding the trade winds west toward the West Indies in the Caribbean. Captain Smith is still in chains, though they haven't freed his wrists and only his ankles remain shackled. When I bring him his morning wash water, he is writing. I glance at the page, then quickly look away. I don't want to be caught being nosy. He washes his face, takes off his shirt, and washes under his arms. I hand him a cloth to dry with. When he is dressed again, he looks at me hard. Reverend Hunt says you can read. He says, excuse me, it is a cross between a question and a statement, really. I nod my answer. He tells me your mother taught you, but your mother was a commoner, a peasant, correct? Yes, sir. 
Can you tell me how it is that she learned to read? he asked. She was taught by a friend, sir. It was the son of our gentleman landlord. I don't tell him that he also gave her the silver locket when she turned thirteen, or how, when their friendship was discovered, he was sent away to France. I see, he says, and goes back to his writing. I wonder how Captain Smith can be so peaceful while he's locked up like this. Since the moment when he nearly punched Master Wingfield, the moment when he reigned in his anger, Captain Smith has been calm. That first day he had me bring him his paper, quill, and ink. When Julius Caesar was put in prison, he wrote, he said, so I shall do the same. He has been writing ever since the story of our journey. As he writes and remains calm, the whisperings have changed. Now they say that Master Wingfield and some of the other gentlemen made up those charges. They say that those gentlemen hate Captain Smith because he is a commoner who has no special respect for nobles. They say you can't hang a man just because he doesn't respect you. In a strange way, even though he is still a prisoner, Captain Smith seems to be winning the battle. James and Richard come down the ladder, talking the whole way. Richard is carrying the oatmeal pot for our mess, and James has a slop bucket he has just emptied. Captain Smith doesn't need me anymore, so I hurry toward the steaming pot of oatmeal. I have to eat fast to get enough. We servants are always served last. When the food is running out, and Master Wingfield's servants, Henry and Abram, are big, greedy men who empty our mess pot in two gulps if we boys don't get a head start. I grab my spoon and dig in. Yes, that's what he said, Richard is saying. They don't wear any clothes at all. They just paint themselves different colors instead. The sailor said he heard it from the French sailor who has already been in the New World. What else, says James says, asks, sorry, that the women cuts and burns their faces and bodies to make pictures on them. Then they put colored dyes in the cuts and burns. They think it makes them look beautiful. I snicker and nearly spit out my oatmeal. Richard gives me an annoyed glance. He said that the men have a hair a yard long on one side of their head, and the hair is shaved close on the other, he says. And they decorate their hair. One of their favorite decorations is they cut off the hand of one of their enemies and dry it in the sun and then tie the dried hand into their hair. Henry and Abram join us. Henry is broad and fleshy and always enjoys an opportunity to smack one of us boys. Abram has hair the color of carrots and one eye that wanders everywhere except where he is looking. When they sit down to eat, James and Richard are silent for a while as they shovel oatmeal into their mouths. There is a plate with five chunks of moldy cheese on it. I go to grab the largest chunk, but Henry slaps my hand away and takes it for himself. I want to slap him back, but he is three times my size and could easily throw me against the wall with one swipe of his arm. I grab a smaller piece of cheese and stuff it into my mouth, green mold and all. They also said that there will be Carib Indians on the islands in the West Indies, Richard continues. They said that the Caribs chop people up for the cook pots and eat them. Now James looks pale and terrified. Henry snorts. Don't worry, lad. They don't want you. You're too skinny and snotty for their taste. He slaps James on the back, 
hard enough to hurt. Then he and Abram go off to their card game with the other common men. What else did you hear? I mock Richard in a sing-song voice. I can hardly believe he is so gullible that the sailors are able to fool him like this. It's true, you know, Richard glares at me. I heard the sailors talking. I heard it all with my own ears. James nods, his eyes wide and scared. You are dunces, both of you, believing that rot, I say. Don't you think the sailors knew you were listening? Don't you think they're up there right now, laughing their heads off about the stupid boy who was eavesdropping and believed all their lies? Richard and James exchange a look. Do you think they were lying, Samuel? James asks me, hopefully. I think you're an idiot, I say. Those sealers are playing games with you. They're almost as bored up there as we are down here. I look at Richard. Do you really think a woman would make cuts and burns in her face to make look beautiful? Richard frowns, then shakes his head. Then stop talking about it, I say. Moments later, we hear the call. Land ho! Richard grabs the empty oatmeal pot, but I yank it out of his hands. Hey, that's my job, he shouts. I brought it down. It's my job now, I say. I ran to the ladder with the pot. No way am I going to let this chance slip by. Up on deck, I squint in the dazzling sun. The sails billow bright white against a blue sky. The breeze is warm. I go to the railing and search the horizon. There it is, a green bump in the distance, in the midst of the jewel-blue sea. The first of the Caribbean islands, I give the pot to the cook and linger, breathing in the sweet air, marveling at the brightness of it all. Richard comes up on deck, and James, too, and several of the gentlemen until the first mate calls a halt. He drives us all back down below, threatening to beat us boys with an oar if we don't hurry. The tween deck is abuzz with gentlemen and commoners both, wondering what this land sighting means. Will we finally be allowed off this stinking ship? They'd better let us get fresh water. What we have left smells like a sick dog. I want fresh meat. I will demand that I be let off no hunt. When the shouting begins up on deck, we all fall silent. God save us! They're coming! Look at them! They're monsters! Captain Newport, permission to make the guns, sir! James and Richard both look at me as if I have the answers. I decide I'd rather be beaten with an oar than sit in the dark tween deck waiting to be devoured by sea monsters. I scramble up the ladder to the deck. We are in shallow water now, and the sea is a transient blue. Moving swiftly across the crystal water are several canoes. In the canoes are the very creatures con conjured up by Richard's stories. They are naked. Their skin is painted red. The women's faces and arms are tattooed with patterns. The men's hair is long with beads and bones. Human bones? Hanging in decoration. They are coming quickly toward our ships. I catch my breath. <sighs> I expect to hear the scrape of the cannons being loaded, but instead I hear Captain Newport's voice. We are not Spanish barbarians. We will not slaughter these people unless they attack first. Get Smith now. Two sailors swing down into the tween deck, and there is the clanking of chains as they unlock Captain Smith's irons. 
Captain Smith emerges from the tween deck. He stands on the deck watching the approaching canoes. His back is straight. His chest is puffed out. He does not look afraid, only determined. A tall man stands up in one of the canoes. He is naked except for a ring of bones around his neck. He raises his hand. Captain Smith does the same. Captain Smith begins speaking strange words and using hand motions to communicate. I easily understand the hand motions. Uh, we come in peace, hand over his heart. We desire trade. He dangles several strings of sparkling beads. We need food. He rubs his stomach. The man in the canoe stoops and picks up something that looks like a very large pine cone with spiky green shoots coming out of one end. He pretends to take a bite out of it. I breathe a sigh of relief. He is understood. Just a side note away from the reading. What do you think that is? A large pine cone with spiky green shoots coming out of the end. Yep, I do too. I think it's a pineapple. Okay, so let's start from there. He has understood. Okay. All afternoon, the natives come back and forth to our ships in their canoes, bringing sweet-smelling fruits and other food from their island, which sits green and lush nearby. The large pine cone with spiky leaves turns out to be called a pineapple, and it tastes like food for a king. The cook names the other things they bring. Mangoes, papayas, plantains, potatoes, tobacco. In return, we give them knives and hatchets, beads and copper, and they are happy. I have seen that Captain Smith's ankles are raw from the rubbing of the irons. That evening, I asked the cook for some tallow and bring it to him. Are you a free man, sir? I ask. I seem to be for now, he says. He grimaces as he rubs in the tallow. The sores on his ankles are cracked and oozing. Quietly, I ask, How did you know the language of those natives? He smiles. Every man speaks the language of greening, of trade, of hunger. I spoke with my hands. I nod, but the words. He shakes his head and whispers, Those are Algonquin words, a language spoken Virginia by the natives there. Roanoke settlers brought back word lists, and I have studied them. Let Newport and the others think they need me as a translator in these islands. It's too hot for those chains. I have one more question, but I'm not sure if I want to know the answer. I take a deep breath and blurt it out. Do the Carib Indians chop people up for their cook pots and eat them? He stops rubbing his ankle for a moment and looks at me. Only if they catch them, he says. Ooh. <laughs> so that's the end of chapter five. It was kind of a short chapter, but we're going to stop right there. I know it's only 15 minutes long, but our next reading will have chapter six and then chapter seven. So um, thank you for listening.